Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Mariella Frostrup and this is Books to Live By, the podcast that asks its guests to pick a handful of titles from a lifetime of reading to help us learn more about the books that have shaped them along the way. This time, I'm delighted to be joined by my Times Radio colleague, Stig Abel. Born in Nottingham in 1980, as Stephen Abel, he earned the nickname Stig in his youth, a reference to the shaggy caveman in Clive King's 1963 children's novel, Stig of the Dump. Books have played a key role in Stig's life. He wrote his first article for the TLS, the literary bi-weekly he would go on to run when he graduated from university with a double first in English, dare I say. He's worked for the Press Complaints Commission, The Sun, TLS, and now presents The Breakfast Programme on Times Radio. And that's not all. He's also authored two books, and his first novel, Death Under a Little Sky, is to be published by HarperCollins next year. Stig Abel, welcome to Books to Live By. I can't believe it's taken me this long to lure you on, because you are, in every way, the most qualified guest I think I've had. Well, I think like you, I, I do... I don't want to get too sort of wishy-washy about this, but I do love books deeply. I have a, a room in my house uh, where which is filled with books, and I feel great every time I look at books, every time I pick up a book. I like rereading books. I wallow in books. I like a bath book. So uh, I, anything that involves me talking to you about books is a, is a, is a joy to behold. Well, I'm terrified because I think that you are so much more deeply immersed than me. And I thought maybe we could go backwards a bit first and just talk about, you know, when you first discovered books and, you know, whether they were a means of escape, whether they were, you know, do you remember the moment when you thought, wow, this is how I can I can get into another world? Uh more or less. My mum always used to say to me that I didn't have a security blanket, you know, like little blankies that kids had. I, I never had that. I had books. So I used to, so I, there was clearly something from a very early age. I just liked having a book in my hands and reading. And the first novelist I, I can remember, which why I mentioned her, is Richmond Crompton writing the Just William books. And the reason I really remember that is because I remember not only reading them and loving them and, and being amused by them, but also being able to see the character of William, being able to want to be William. I did that sort of performative thing you do with books sometimes. I love food in books. I love the descriptions of food in books. And, you know, uh, William with his sweets, they used to get the, sort of the, 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 the gobstoppers and the like. And I remember once him eating an apple, because it was written in the, in the wartime and it was set in the wartime, and um, there wasn't much food around. And he ate the apple and then he ate the core as well. And I remember I used to sit on the roof of the shed and escape from people. And I remember reading Just William on the shed roof in my house, eating apples and eating the cores. So kind of straight away, there's a sort of tactile thing going on that this book, brilliantly written, I think, and a, a book that, that many children um, still love. It's quite hard, though, when you reread it, if you ever come back to it. It's not easy kids stuff, actually. It's quite elaborately written in some respects. It's, I'm going to pull you back in a minute because you've launched straight into your first book. Oh, um, uh, but um, it is also 
quite archaic in a way. I mean, it does represent a sort of a lost, a lost England. Dare I, dare I suggest? Yeah, and I, I quite like books for that purpose because I'm quite fond of 60s and 70s thrillers. I quite like stuff written in the 30s. It comes with problems, and we might get into that as we as we go along. You know, you have to have a sort of ethical sense when you're reading them. You have to forgive some things and not forgive others and be just aware that the world has changed. But I think that's okay. You don't, you know, you don't have to read stuff written by Richmond Compton and expect it to be the world of 2022. It's okay that it's the world of 1945 or 1935 or whenever it, it, it's set. Um, so I quite like that, that the archaism. I, I quite like the, sort of, the idea of a book as a sort of storage of things that have happened that are a bit distant from you and you can, you can, you can find out about I guess I mean it less in a sort of, you know, um, woke cancellation way and more in the celebration of a kind of way of life that, that, that really doesn't feel like it can be easily accessed at the moment. And I think maybe for a lot of children, I wonder if it's still a popular book. Do you, do you read it to your kids? My kids, we've got them all. And my daughter, who's 13 now, really got into them. Um, but my son less so. And I, I'm a bit surprised by that because it, it seems to me that the William character is kind of the archetypal book for a boy. You can, and I know she actually, Richard Compton tried to write uh, uh, other characters, other books for girls and it never caught on. So William was this great creation that she breathed life into and she could never do anything uh, better than that. She wanted to write adult novels and they never, they were, they're quite good in some respects, but they never really caught on either. But my daughter um, got into them and I, I think... It's like anything, any fictional world, which is why series books, in my mind, are the, are the greatest pleasures in life. When you can find an author that gives you a series, I just think that's just the most joyful thing possible. And I think my daughter manages that with William, that it's quite hard to get into. It uses really long words and, and long sentences. It's not childish in any way. But once you kind of break into the world, I think you can just just find yourself wandering around it. And my daughter managed to do that. My, my middle son didn't. So I think it probably is a bit hard to get into. You're so right about the series thing. I remember when I was a kid um, being given... A the night and books were quite expensive. I don't when, so you, you won't remember the 1970s being younger than me, but um, books were really expensive and they were like a treat. You know, you'd get given one for Christmas as a as a present. You yeah. know, that would be your present. And, and I got given the box set of the Narnia Chronicles, oh, yeah. and I just couldn't believe that I would have that length of reading um, in front of me. But certainly for me. They were an escape from an, a world around me, an adult world, perhaps, that, that I didn't really uh, want to be uh, a part of or I wanted to get away from, you know. Um, how much were they an escape for you? Um, and, and as a child, I mean, you know, it's quite difficult to be a bookish child because it sets you apart. You know, there isn't really a bookish tribe, is there? You sort of nod to each other in corridors, but you don't hang yeah. out together, um, especially when you're young. So did, did you feel that you were different? Not really. I, I'm very straight with my parents. I think the thing you make about not, there not being many books, I loved how finite books were. So my, my parents, um, we had, I don't know how many books we had in our house, maybe 200, 100, 200. And, and so there was just this set of books and you could go to a library, but you didn't always go to the library. You could never buy books like we do now. I mean, I buy books from Amazon really often or I go to, <laughs> yeah. or I go to a bookshop and buy loads or I go to a charity bookshop. I'm buying books all the time. But when I was a kid, you didn't have that. You couldn't just get a book the next day for two quid. And so I love the fact... So to me, books were actually quite a connection with my parents. My, my dad 
used to say, ever used to ask him a question, there was no internet, obviously, he said, I've got a book somewhere, and he'd pull out a reader's encyclopedia and look it up and there'd be an answer somewhere. So I think books were always seen to me as this, this thing to be shared. And I think my life, because when you're at home, no social media, your home life is your home life. So at school, I was kind of probably a normal rough and tumble kid. I played a bit of rugby. I, I, I wasn't a sort of quiet kid in, in any way. But I love books, and that was a thing I, I, I did at home. And, and reading from that moment, probably of just William, but certainly around that time from what am I, five, six, really until now, it's just been this thing that I've always had to rely upon. And it's got me through some fairly tough times, as it has most people. And, 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 but from, so I never felt it as a, as a thing to be worried about or to conceal from people. It just felt something I did at home. And home was a long way away from school and home was a long way your friends were your friends school was school and home life was very different and of course that particular division we've spoken about this before has just exploded for people and i wonder how that would impact my reading now how difficult um speaking of uh, impacting reading how difficult do you think it is to to, to get kids your kids to, to to be as interested in books as as you were because as you say i mean it really was our entertainment you know i was i was thrilled to have books whereas my kids now you know sort of look at me and go oh, you know when i sort of go why don't you read something if you're bored why yeah. don't you read something yeah. you know? i try i'm the same as you i have those conversations i really try not to <laughs> uh, because i don't want it to be a thing like, do eat your vegetables, read a book. Um, and actually, my youngest is four, so she's just learning to read. So I've got the absolute pain of teaching her to read with the Biff and Chip books. I don't know if you ever had to Oh, come yes. Up. Oh, yes, I've been through Biff and Chip. God, they're awful. It's my third time through them. I hate them. Have so you done much. Beast Quest? Oh, she's a bit... Yeah, she, yeah. Choose your destiny. Yeah, we, we, we're <laughs> a bit away from that now. But look, it's a problem when you have three kids like I do. I've done it twice already, and it's all coming, coming around again. So I... They, they can read, they like reading, but I've really tried. My daughter um, pursues her own thing. She got quite into Harry Potter once in a while. She quite reads quite adult books now. My son is a real browser, and I try not to be annoying about this, or he'll say I, I fail spectacularly. He starts loads of books, and he'll pick them up, and he'll read really diligently, and he'll love it for 100 pages, and then something else will attract him, the cricket will be on, and he'll, he'll lose it again. And I sit there going, finish the book! <laughs> And I'm trying not to be that person uh, because I'd, I'd like him to finish the books, but I, I think you've just got to let them find their own way through it. There's nothing worse than being a prescriptive parent. I really, really try not to be that. I said I was going to drag you backwards um, because we did launch straight into uh, your first choice, which is Just William by Richmond Crompton. But... Um, You've also written a book yourself about reading uh, called Things I Learned on the 628, a reference to the train that you would catch and, 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 and catch up on, on your reading on. And, you know, clearly writing and literature played an enormous part in your life to, uh, to date. So how difficult was it for you to, to hone it down to five titles? And how seriously or how did you interpret the kind of books to live by yeah. uh, titles? It's a really great question that. And I, I think I probably, I leapt on, there's certain books I've chosen that I just, uh, I, were really straightforward. But I think I could have gone in different directions. You know, I, I've not picked Shakespeare. I've read, a, you know, I've read all of Shakespeare. I did that on the commute, actually. No one's well. picked Shakespeare yet. Do you know that? I'm not, yeah. Which, which is amazing because I've done quite a lot of actors. And none of them have picked it. So I went through a period where, I, you know, I, I did 
uh, English university, as you said. And I've read a, I've read Shakespeare a lot. And then on the on, on a commute, I did a thing where I read all of it in six months. And I love Shakespeare. And I've read Hamlet maybe a hundred times. So Hamlet is a kind of thing that I, that's that's been in my life and 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 Measure for Measure and Julius Caesar and there's quite a few that I love deeply and I've, I've read a lot. And, and so I thought I could have done that. And I thought I've not done any poetry. Well, I've not never. I like poetry, but how important it's been. A couple of you know, I love Emily Dickinson. So I thought of that. And then I, what I came back to is reading for me is ultimately the thing I do when I need to 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 find some calm, to find some mental repose, when I need to look after myself. So my interpretation is: what are the five books that I do use? I have used. You can plot a course through my life where I have used them as this source of something, something almost ineffable that's got me through things. And so each one of the titles, I think, have been important to me at various parts of my life, some of them throughout my life, you know, not in one moment, but they're just there. And um, I could probably have named another 20, because I don't know where you stand on this, Mariella. I'm a rereader as well as a reader. My wife hates rereading, so she will never do it. I think I'm with your wife. Yeah, mm. uh, but I, I, I think any one time I'm probably reading two, three or four books, one of which will be rereading because I absolutely love familiarity. I like the, the description where you know a good description's coming up, when you know a good scene, like food I quite like. There's the idea where you have these moments of sort of tactile, you can think of specific food in specific books where you suddenly are there at the table. So I, I'm always rereading as well. So, but you can see, all right, there's, I think there's a sort of cosy relationship with, with books which isn't necessarily that cool, but it's just that's what they have always been for me. Um, I say I don't like rereading, but I did recently um, reread Unless by Carol Shields and actually fell in love with it even more. It was even more revolutionary, I felt, and playful and uh, discursive and naughty. And and, uh, and I, it sort of highlighted that thing about how reading at different stages in your life, books mean different things to you. Um, so I wondered if um, any of the the books here are books that having gone back to you've realized how much you've changed in the interim yeah i mean i think some of them i have because a lot of them i probably read for the first time if not all of them i read for the first time when i was either in my teenage years or early 20s really and i, I think that's, all of them i think probably all of them um and I've come back to them, I've come back to all of them. So I've not just read, read any of these books once. So that's the other thing. I could never have picked of my five any book I'd read once. Uh, because um, to me, an important book is a book that you come back to over and over again. And maybe that rules out these sort of brilliant shooting star moments where you just read a book and you think, that was incredible. But even then, I'd, I'd like to think I would come back to it. I think the thing it's really, I think the thing people should keep in their minds, if you're struggling through a book, Put it down. Give up on it. Don't be one of those people who's plowing through a book because they started it. Because it might not be the writer, it might be you. And I remember Moby Dick, I used to try and read for years and years and years. I didn't like it. I was a horrible thing about it. it, didn't, it just, I just found it too hard and I wasn't in the right place in my life. I was too busy. And I came back to it a few years ago and I loved it. And that, the book hasn't changed. The book was written, you know, in 1851. Nothing has happened to that text other than me changing. And I think you've got to keep that in mind that and when you're writing books as well, you've got to try and keep in mind. It might not be you. It might be something going on in someone else's life. And there may be a time to come back to, 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 to anything. I might have to give the Alexandria Quartet another go. That's a really good... <laughs> see, I read that and I liked it, but I wonder, particularly the, towards the end, of it, it's very long. 
so long. <laughs> I've only got past Justine, I think. Yeah, and there's beautiful bits to it. It's Lawrence Durrell and it's bit, this sort of modernisty stuff. It's just postmodernism, I think, isn't it? But Ulysses and all of that, you've got to be in the right frame of mind. And if you're not in the right frame of mind, that's all right. You know, you don't have to read anything and you don't have to pretend to like stuff. I find that the, the cardinal sin in books is snobbery. And just people pretending to like things they don't actually like, denying the things they do really well, like. We're sort of using them as a kind of qualification badges, aren't yeah. they? You know, this is who I am because I read this. And actually all books are great. You know, that's what I'm saying. I love being in a room of books, you know, picking up a, 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 a title and feeling it and all of that. I don't think you need to be too snobbish about this stuff. Um, let's talk then about The Lost Continent or yeah. Lost Continent by, by Bill Bryson. Um, was it your first introduction? Because it is him travelling, I think, 13,978 miles, well uh, to be precise, <laughs> around the United States. Um, was it your first introduction to, to America? I think it probably was. I went to America once, as a, twice as a kid, and I think I just read Lost Continent before. I think Bill Bryson is the person that t- showed me that just being decent and being able to write is all you need. So Lost Continent is... What him. do you mean by decent? I think he's a fundamentally decent person, Bill Bryson. I think he's kind, he's he's comic, but he's not cruel. And, you know, I've read all of his stuff and reread his stuff. And this was came out in the, in the late 80s and he's going around and he's slightly poking fun at Midwest America, which he's from. He's very much poking yeah. fun at Middle America. Uh, and he's from it and he's entitled to do it. And you know, his book begins, I, I, I came from Des Moines, somebody had to. And in fact, my first book was I came from Loughborough, somebody had to as an homage to, to Bill Bryce. Um, and that was, a, and so it introduced me to nonfiction. Uh, probably I had read a lot of novels by that point, it introduced me to travel writing. But it really introduced me to the fact that someone, just because he was thoughtful and funny and could turn a sentence, clearly had this career that I could never imagine but did exist. This man was basically living by his wit and his pen and doing it in this very charming way in memorable sentences. You know, and then he wrote Neither Here Nor There, which is about Europe, and Notes from a Small Island, which is about Britain. He obviously came to, to, to Britain, Bill Bryson, and lived there. And they were, I used to read them. I remember my parents getting me down to dinner to read out to them the funniest bits. And he just became this figure in our family, I think, Bill Bryson, is just this, this just very clever, warm and genial, genial presence. Um, didn't you uh, bring him up in your interview for Cambridge, about which you were quite nervous, I think, and 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 you know, yeah, in awe. Uh, and didn't you bring him up as your as your favourite author? You talked about literary snobbery. I wondered how that went down. Well, I was I, I did worry, worry about that a bit, but then there's nothing worse than going to that type of thing and saying, "What do you like? I like Proust." And then tell me 10 things about Proust and you're like, oh, I don't know anything. Uh, so I figured, actually, you better talk about what you know. And I did know him and I did love him. And actually, I think what they wanted to hear, which is what, and my advice to anyone in any field, you know, get people, young people going to interviews is you should talk about what you really like and know. And that's good enough. And actually, Bill Bryson was fine for Cambridge. Bill Bryson should be, for, he should be good enough for anyone. What about um, Bill Bryson's uh, obvious appetite for travel? I mean, it might not be travel on the sort of global scale across the Gobi Desert or anything, but but it, does that reflect an interest of yours? I, I think I think not. I think I, you might be the opposite. <laughs> Marianne, you're the intrepid one among us, and I'm very happy for you to go intrepidly travelling. And this is the other thing about books, that I'm very happy to read a book about something. 
So if you know, you can you can go and you know um, walking around Peru if you like. I'm very happy to read your book about it. I don't want to go there myself. So actually, how can that be? I, I, Do you I, think I, that books stop you from from living adventures in life? I mean, I don't yes. think I've met a case like you before. Yeah, I, I'm happy with that. I have a very happy life, I, 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 and books give me that. I think you know there is a sort of thing of you know. Books broaden the mind in the way that people say travel broadens the mind. I can I can buy that as a thing. I'm I'm very happy reading about the exploits of others without having to ha- to, to have any exploits myself. And actually, I met Bill Bryson finally because I interviewed him for Times Radio when he retired. And I remember saying to him, "What?" And, but I I knew already what a lovely person he was. And he just came out this this very kind person. I met, met his publisher a few times, so I know how the genesis of the books. He basically was was beloved by a country because he wrote so well. Um, and then I had a, a, a tumour in my, near my brain and I, I um, went to hospital by myself and I was waiting in the thing, the, the, the room. And I took Bill Bryson with me and uh, I just picked, I think it was, I think it probably was neither here nor there, the, the European one, the second one. And I remember sitting in the, in, the, in the room reading it, waiting for these scans and it all turned out to be more or less okay. Um, and I emailed him and said, I just want to let you know, don't reply to this, but just so you know, you helped me in a difficult moment. And I'm sure millions of people think that about you and about any author, really. Isn't it a great thing an author can give someone? And he just sent me a lovely email saying how, how thrilled he was and how I hoped he was okay and he'll buy me a drink and all of this stuff. And he just, I just think, you, uh, but he has been that figure, that figure that sort of represents an ideal of being a sort of decent writer. Still a commercial writer, not a particularly highfalutin writer that I think is, I, I really cherish, I think. Um, I don't know how to do a professional uh, podcast segue into the next book because they're very, very different. Because uh, your next choice is um, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. I, I don't know about you, but when I first read Jane Austen, I think I, I think Jane Austen is destroyed by being on school syllabuses because I don't think at that age you have any concept of the sort of social satire that you find in those books that are really the, the engaging bit of them. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. I, I, I met her, I think, at school. I think I read Pride and Prejudice at A-level and then at university, she was there. I think about Jane Austen, she wrote six novels. And there's some other stuff, you know, there's some juvenilia and all that stuff, but she wrote six novels. So you can read all of Jane Austen and be done with it. And you can't do that with many great writers, actually. So, <laughs> it's like an absolute kind of, you know, obsessive form of reading. Yeah, if, if you want to be like that. But I mean, I don't love Jane I mean, If you talk to people who love Jane Austen, they'll tell you that the best book is Persuasion. Persuasion is like the cool one to say. But every like. time I interview John Mullen, I think I must read more Jane Austen yeah, because he just manages to describe it, yeah. you know. And he'll talk, and also like, Persuasions are the, the, what, the, what the cool kids say about Jane Austen. I love Pride and Prejudice because you're right. At one level, you're totally right. You can grow up with Jane Austen because there's so much depth there. You know, the fact that the... Napoleonic War is in the corner and you never quite see it. It's really interesting. But at heart, this is not going to shock you from everything we've talked about, I'm a rank sentimentalist. I do like happy endings. I do like comedies that end with a marriage. I do love the fact that Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy, I think, wouldn't be get on quite well in the end. I think there's lots of satire in that. There's that great bit where he asks her, where did you fall at first fall in love with me? And she says, when I first saw your big house, which is funny enough to be a joke, but also true enough to make you make you stop and heart because, because the idea of the financial side of it is so critical to Pride and Prejudice. So it's cynical and sentimental at the same time, Pride and Prejudice, which is a hell of a trick when you think about it uh, to pull off. There's a thing Martin Ames wrote about Pride and Prejudice. He said that the genius of Pride and Prejudice is we all become Mrs. Bennett because 
All we want is for those daughters to get married to rich people, which is mad when you think about it. It's a horribly transactional way of thinking about love and, and romance. But she manages to make us see that that's the world while also giving us the sort of telltale fairy ending a bit as well. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, that transactional thing, I mean, maybe Martin is a bit out of time uh, thinking that you want your children to marry rich people, but you definitely want to see them on a path where they're not going to, you know, descend into penury or, you know, where, 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 where that sort of comfort. And of course you want her children to. That's the other, the, I think what he's saying, not that you necessarily want that for your children. Mm. You, you In the book, you become like her because you're desperate for Jane to marry Bingley and you're desperate for uh, Elizabeth to marry Darcy in the end, which is mad really because they, you know, they, they only met each other about four times. I don't know how much genuine love it really is. D does it does it improve with rereading? I mean, does it? Did, is there something to be gained from rereading it? Because it, it is a book I wouldn't even... I mean, I know I've said I'm not a big fan of rereading anyway, but uh, it just feels like there's so many other books well, still true. to read. That's the trouble. That is a great argument for which there is no rebuttal. Clearly, there are millions of books. You can never... You know, there was a period in history where you could read everything. When that was, maybe in the modern world, like the 17th century, where there's a finite number of books. There isn't like that now, so I, I agree with that. I think you, you just realise how beautifully arch it is. You get some of the jokes better. You know, the first ever humble brag in literature is in Pride and Prejudice. There's a bit where Bingley starts, sits down to, to, to write a letter and he, he, he turns to his sister, I think, and says oh, look, I'm so, I've got so many ideas, I, I, just, I write, write so messily. And Darcy's sitting there and goes, you're just saying that to show off how good your ideas are. <laughs> and I, I didn't really get that the first few times I read that, but there it is, the first humble brag in literature. So I think she writes so beautifully. And I do like romance and sentimentality. I read Georgia Heyer. I don't know if you've ever read it. I used to read it when I was a teenager, you know, with those heroines with violet eyes yeah. sleeping in and out of carriages. I cannot believe that you read Georgia Hare. Like, that should be your guilty secret. I like Georgia Hare. And also, she's like Jane Austen in, in the 50s, and it's a little less sophistication, but still that archness. I think there's nothing wrong with a bit of Georgia Hare. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You also, I think, you know, you talk about how you like a happy ending. And I agree with you, you know, there's nothing like an epiphany because you sort of feel like all's right with the world. Um, but you also have a real penchant for detective fiction. Yeah. 
And I remember the late, great P.D. James once saying to me, I said to her, why do you think people just have such a huge appetite for detective fiction? And she said, because people like to feel that everything's okay in the world and detective fiction allows you that. It tidies, there's yep. a crime, something yep. bad exactly happens, right. and then it tidies things up. And she said that she thought it was a, a sort of anecdote, anecdote antidote uh, to anxiety. This is exactly right. I, I totally agree with that. And you know, they are the, the, you know, a book, and Jane Austen talks about this, where you get to the end of a book, she talks about the telltale compression of the pages. You know the ending is coming. And so you know there's going to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. And as long as we're not getting sort of postmodern pranking books, there's going to be a conclusion. And detective fiction is absolutely the, the epitome of that for books, that um, the world is messy, here is a bit of structure, a problem is, is there, I see this in the books, of, I love P.G. Woodhouse. You look at P.G. Woodhouse books, they're effectively detective fiction without any crimes. In Something bad nearly happens, you know, an inheritance doesn't quite work out, and then you get to the end of the book and everything is settled and resolved. Resolution, the idea of absolutely everything being fixed, is an antidote to anxiety. And I remember in my 20s, I had real terrible bouts of anxiety. I used to, I used to lie in bed shaking, like physically shaking. I had all sorts of tests and I thought, oh, what's wrong with my kidneys? And it wasn't anything like that. It was, it was, I was just anxious. I was kind of implacable anxiety and I, I couldn't quite get to it. And you're exactly right. The antidote to that, you can't ever fix anything like that and you don't want to make too many pretenses about this. But the thing where I found the most peace in the world was reading and making myself read and particularly detective fiction, thrillers, the idea of genre fiction, which is very much structured, beginning, middle, end, I found it completely consoling. And it's this idea of coziness, an idea of using it as a crutch. You can see in all this stuff, that's where I'm coming to. And it's not very literary. This is not very high literature. This is not about ideas. And I totally concede that maybe I'm, I'm talking, talking it all down. But detective fiction at its best, when it's beautifully written, is just this little moment of order in a chaotic world. And you see lots of very literary people love detective fiction. You know, Auden love detective fiction. If you read people's diaries, you often find that they like it because it's just this moment of, of calm and repose in an otherwise quite hectic world. Was it the chaotic world, in hindsight, that made you anxious or something else? I, at the time I was just having children, I was, I, you mentioned I worked at the Press Complaints Commission, there was the Leveson Inquiry, I don't know if you remember that, that, was all, that was all going, and I was had to, I submitted, the, you know, I've written three books now, but my, my submission to the Leveson Inquiry was 110,000 words. So that size was, of a book. That's the size of a book, and it was the longest one to it, so stuff was going on clearly in my life, and I was, so I was kind of professionally anxious, I, I, I have this absolutely majestically wonderful wife. So she's always been this, this great thing in my life. I'm so fortunate to, to, to have met her. So I always had that kind of rock and this, this, this person I just love hanging out with. But I think there was genuine... I just couldn't deal with things as well as I thought I could. And I just remember it manifesting itself physically in a way that really frightened me because I suddenly thought, if you can't control your mind and you feel it slipping away from you, what have you got really? Because you experience everything through your mind. So if that starts to wobble... It's such a terrifying thought. Even talking about it now, you kind of think, Christ, it's frightening. And to hold on to, you have to hold on to something. You've got to grip something. And that can be a person, and it has to be other things as well. And I think the thing I, the books, that it was literally something, and metaphorically, something I could, I could grip. Does it come back? Yeah, it does. And it, this, it's there, I think, there's a hum. I don't know if you, have, you would agree with it. There's, there's, whenever, there's this sort of hum of something there that you don't want that hum to increase. 
And so as long as the hum is a hum, you're fine and it's just there. And and do you think books keep it at arm's length? Yeah, I do. That's so interesting. I do. And I, I, and I really firmly believe that. You know, I always feel that I'm never more than 10 feet away from a book at any point in my life. And actually, if I have to go somewhere, I have to do something the next day, I have to worry about something, I know that for half an hour, I'll just grab something and it will put it to one side for for for, for that period. And that's really important. To yeah, me. Uh, definitely. I think it really brilliant. I'm, I have terrible problems, not 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 going to sleep, but but staying asleep. And um, and I've discovered that reading before I go to sleep rather than, you know, checking what I need to read for the next day or, you know, stuff on my phone or whatever absolutely makes such a, a huge difference. I think just because of the, the its ability to transport you far away from, you know, whatever flotsam and jetsam is. And screens are the worst. I mean, that's the other thing. It's not only flotsam and jetsam, it's blips and bleats as well. That's the other problem. It's, it's, it's activity, it's, it's movement. And, and there's something very serene about a book, even if it's really exciting. I love exciting books, but the actual, a book itself is quite a serene thing, I think. Um, Let's talk then about Gordy Nights by Dorothy Sayers. I yeah. mean, golden age of detective fiction and, and so on. Again, uh, set, in a, set in a country perhaps barely recognisable to the one we, we inhabit now. Yeah, and you know, I, I, this is another example of a book I've struggled with in some ways because I first read it. Not much happens in Gordy Nights. It's set in Oxford. It's quite a lot about Oxford politics. But the, the heart of it is this relationship between... She had this long-running series character. Again, my love of series. I love how you grow with a central character. You become familiar with them. So it's Peter Wimsey who's the main character and, and he has this over the last five books before she stopped writing them. Um, this relationship with a crime author character called Harriet Vane. And their courtship really finishes in, in this book. The next book is after they, they get married. And so it's both a detective story, which is beautifully written. She's a marvellous writer, I think, uh, Dorothy says. But it's also this story about two people, quite um, angular people who don't quite fit together. Uh, she's a very independent woman. He's had PTSD from the war. He's an aristocrat. His family are, could be a bit suspicious of her. So there's lots of reasons why they sort of bang into each other. He actually rescues her from being accused of murder in an earlier book. So, uh, But this, this sort of love affair burgeons among the dreaming spies of Oxford. So it's quite, a, it's quite an escapist book. It's beautifully written and it's part of a series. So in some ways it... It kind of epitomizes all, boxes, it kind of epitomizes it? all the things I like, I like a lot. Um, and obviously uh, it has this, this happy ending, this anxiety-depleting happy ending and a tidiness. Uh, how much is that an aspect of... I mean, you know, we, we, earlier in the, in the introduction was talking about, you know, you taking your, your, your name from, from Stig of the Dump, you know, and, and famously dishevelled. But actually, do you think, again, going back to the anxiety thing, that one of the antidotes to that is to keep a tidy brain? Yeah, I, I, tidiness is actually... You're so right. And, and I think it's about control as well, to a certain extent, that, you know, that you can't control the world, you can't really control the path of your life to, 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 to a large extent. You obviously can influence it. So that notion of a um, of, of sort of some clicking shut like a box and and sort of working, and I think that's true. You know, Sherlock Holmes is another really good. I've read. I must have read Sherlock Holmes stories. Some of them I've read a hundred times, two hundred times. I love them. I think they're they're beautifully good, and it's an amazing thing just just from a literary history point of view. Conan Doyle writes the Sherlock Holmes stories back in the beginning of the twentieth century, invents the form. And arguably hasn't really been surpassed much in the, the 120 years. Isn't that amazing? He wrote, he kind of invented the whole concept really of detective fiction. They've been a little bit before, but not much. And even now, if you ask most people, what's the greatest example of detect detective fiction? You would say 
uh, Sherlock Holmes. That's that. I mean, I, I just—it's a staggering achievement, really, when you when you think about it. I'm fascinated uh, by the fact that that you are clearly, you know, absolutely deeply immersed in detective fiction. You love it. You've read so much of it, and yet, and yet, you have the guts to um, add your own offering to yeah. the ooh. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that, well, because you know, for for me, I've, I've always felt, uh, my, or at least my great excuse for not writing any fiction has been that I've read so much great fiction that I'm just intimidated. And that's difficult. And I used to review, you know, I've reviewed lots of fiction in my life. So I really have seen great and bad. And I'd like to think I can see the difference between the two. I think it's potentially intimidating to think about the book's not out for a while anyway. So I don't have to address it too much in my mind. But here's what I, I wrote it for myself. So I wrote it for fun. I didn't have a contract to write it. I just love doing it. So I wrote it partially for me. I think I partially wrote it for my wife. So I used to send her chapters every time I finished them so she could read them. And I got to the whole thing. It's called Death Under a Little Sky. It's, a, it's, a, it's about a detective who gets, um, um, has a miserable time in the city, moves to the countryside. He gets, a, he gets an inheritance. So it's so contemporary. Contemporary, isolated farmhouse, away from it all, no phones, no internet, no television. Bliss. It's like a, <laughs> the fantasy is obvious. Uh, but also, I don't like, I don't like uh, mobile phones in, in... I think mobile phones ruin detective fiction a bit as well. That's why I, I quite like historic uh, detective fiction. So he's, he's away from mobile phones and then he has to solve, solve a crime. So I wrote it... So it's got nods to lots of other detective fiction. Um, but I wrote it for pleasure and I gave, I gave it to my agent and she said, I really don't want to read this because if it's rubbish, I don't want to tell you it's rubbish and so I'm not a bit, a bit awkward about it. So she read it in the end, and, and then I, she, I sold two books off it, and so there's a sequel that's already written. Another happy ending. Another, and, but this, has, and this, has, this is, and the things I like about detective fiction are in this book. There's a, there's a, there's a romantic element, there's a happy, there's a sentimental aspect to it. Um, there's, there's bits of tactile moments with food. So the things I love about detective fiction, I've put in my own book, and people either like it or not. I'm sure people will like it. You will if 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 your agent did, then you know. She's a hard woman. Yeah. <laughs> um, who would you say most influenced it? I know you say that it has all the elements that you like in detective fiction, but um, is there a particular era that it reflects most? Because your your interest in de de detective fiction kind of goes from the sort of hard boiled Americans yeah. uh, to the golden age. You know, I, I think it's Brits. probably it's probably a bit more golden agey than anything else. I think that it's, it's quite rural in that respect. But, you know, I was even reading it, you know, I was thinking about it, you know, have you ever read the Inspector Montalbano books set in Sicily? It, they're, not, they're not the Donna... Donna not no, Donna Leon. No. She, she, that's Venice. Yeah. But I've read them. They're, they're, that's a different thing. There's a Sicily one. Um, these were made into TV programs which people really love. But he's this sort of irascible Sicilian in this very corrupt environment. Anyway, he has amazing meals in it. He has this cleaner that just puts this amazing food in his fridge and he eats it. And, um, so even there's a bit of that in that, the food bit of that. I think you can find stuff, for, and that's contemporaneous. He died relatively recently and it's from Italy. The other way I think about detective fiction, it's all over the world. You know, there's Scandi Noir. Italy uh, produces quite a lot. Sicily, America, as you say. You know. So I do think you get a bit of the travel of the mind even if I'm not going to get off my bottom to, to do any actual travelling. There's a bit of a travel of the mind in, in the genre as well. Before we move on to uh, your final title, I think, um, uh, can you tell me a little bit about this love of food in, um, yes. in, in books? Because, I mean, does it extend to things like like Water for Chocolate and books like that? Because I've noticed that the one thing about your list is it is quite... Um, 
European novel, yeah. Anglo-Saxon, dare I say, even, yeah. you know, if you incorporate uh, the Americans. And yet a lot of those incredibly romantic and lavish food-loving books are often, you know, from more exotic places. I think I'm guilty of being too parochial. I think that's very fair. I think it's very Eurocentric. I like incidental food treatment, I think, rather than... I think when it becomes very South American lavish, it, it overwhelms me a bit. I'm not so interested in that. I like... A, there's even a moment, in, for example, in a Hemingway novel, his first novel, which I think is, is probably his best, or his, his second, technically. Um, I don't know if you read it, Fiesta. Yeah. Sorry. I read that as a teenager, obviously loved it. When you reread it, it's got all sorts of problems in it. The first, no, I mean, I think Hemingway's brilliant for teenage boys. Yeah, I think basically. that's right. And but there's a moment in it, and where they go off, they're fishing somewhere, and anyway, they um, um, they go take a bottle of wine with them, and they pour the put. They find a, a spring, and they push the wine bottle down into the spring, so it gets chilled, so it's almost frozen. They pick it out, and they drink it, and it tastes faintly of rust. And I remembered that. I, I remembered that for. 25 years and it's that little moment of just a description of a, of a plate in Inspector Montalbano's fridge just of, of, of whatever pasta he's eating or whatever he always, eats, he always eats red mullet so you know red mullet fish and that's the thing I like and I don't eat that much food I'm not you know another problem <laughs> I don't travel I don't eat very much I have a slightly awkward relationship with food I, I see food as a bit of a calorific threat uh, in a slightly depressing fashion and so food in food on books... A calorific like, threat. Yeah. Sorry, I think we have to unpick Right, that. so I, I don't know if you do this. I kind of... I love food. Do you? Do yeah. you ever worry about I food? I love food and I love travelling. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we're opposites of track, really, in this, aren't we, Mariela? Um, do you ever worry about... So to me, once you try and start being healthy, I think it's really pernicious because you start seeing food as not a beautiful thing to enjoy but a kind of a threat to manage. I see things, I mean, I, we have digressed enormously, but I do see things as wastes of calories yes. and other things as, you know, worth it. Yeah. If I'm, if so I'm gonna, I do divide it like that in my which head. Which isn't very healthy if you think about it. If, no, if, probably if not. If I'm going to eat that cake, it better be a really good cake because I'm yeah. wasting calories on it. That's a very funny relationship to food. And actually, when I read back to stuff, particularly in the 30s... Very privileged also. It, it is very privileged. And if you read the 30s, 40s and 50s, which I often do... It's amazing. They write food, Evelyn Ward does this, they write about food as this massive treat because they've had rationing, they've had massive privation. So food for them, is no, there's no element of worry about it. You worry about it not being there. When it's there, you enjoy it. And, you know, I read a lot of, go back to the beginning, Enid Blyton, you know, the lashings of cocoa, um, Wind in the Willows, that when they go on the picnic with Mole and Ratty. Oh, and it's yeah. And, you, and all, the word, all the food stuff become one word and it's, it's hams and pickles and crisp and all of that. <laughs> That idea of food is this sort of tangible largesse, I think it's wonderful in, in literature and it's quite hard to cling to in, in life, possibly. I can't believe that you don't, therefore, like... I mean, you must have read Marquez or... Yeah. Um, uh, I'm trying to think who else would, would, would have had... But Marquez is good for teenagers. I remember first reading Magical Realism and thinking... Well, this is the only way of ever writing. This is, why wouldn't you have all the best bits of realism and all the, the best bits of fantasy in one amazing... You know, I remember loving the time of Colin and thinking, well, this is as good as writing gets. I slightly, I slightly grew out of that idea. That was, a that was a big teenage moment for me getting into that. And I wonder if I slightly pushed that to one side eventually. Interesting, interesting. I never think of them as... I think, yeah, I probably read them in my 20s. And I, 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 I think for me, you know, that thing about, you know, books being a means of travel the last thing I want to read about are, are, are my surroundings. 
Oh, I love, uh, yeah. I, see, I, I'm completely allergic to reading books that are too close to my own experience. I yeah. only want books to take me away from it. And interestingly, in a way, your final title, American Tabloid by, by James Elroy, sums up all of those things because I always think that those sort of hard-boiled books from America yeah. are so much better than the real thing, having spent a lot of time in America. Yes. And actually, I think American Tabloid is the most hard boy. And there's a sequel called The Cold 6000. Now, James Arroyo writes amazing, violent crime fiction. You're at LA Confidential. And so he was just this ordinary crime writer. Very good. LA Confidential is a great book. And then he writes American Tabloid. It's about the assassination of Kennedy uh, through the eyes of these, these, these very deeply flawed characters. One's a dodgy FBI agent, one's a dodgy CIA agent, and one's a mobster, mobster assassin. And it's basically the dist the purest distillation of hard-boiled fiction. It's horribly brutal. The sentences are are sort of vinegary, short, and, and angry. And it was given to me by someone maybe twenty years ago, and, it, and just saying this is this is who, who liked detective fiction got me into detective. Often uh, recommended detective fiction to me, and just said just read this. And it is so magisterially brutal and forceful and not like Dorothy says. I mean, it's, it's, well, it's, it's full of moral knots and it doesn't really untie them or sort, it, the, sort out it, the, the, the morass, does it? But I think it's because it's so at ease with that, that. What it basically says is, it does untie them in the end because the way it unties them is to say, people are flawed and mean and brutal and you can't do anything about it. And violence happens. These characters, the, the main character in it, who I love, one of my favourite characters all in fiction is a guy called Pete Bondurant, who's a six foot ten uh, French Canadian assassin, and uh, for the CIA, for the CIA and for the mafia, and he is just this uncompromisingly violent person who lives in a violent world, yet has a relationship with someone that's quite sentimental. Um, but ultimately, if you read that and The Cold 6000, which are the two pinnacles of James Elroy's writing, he then gets silly and he gets too in love with alliteration and it becomes a parody of himself. So his later books I, I really disappoint me because I love these two books so much. Um, and it is just this, this it's simple, there's a simplicity to it at least. If Bill Bryson introduced you to Americana, a much more benign yeah. and kind of cosy, hand-knit sweater version, yeah. um, then this book, James Elroy's American Tabloid, would seem to be at the opposite end of, of that spectrum. And I know that that, that that you are a sort of an Americana addict, uh, self-confessed. Yeah, I love America. So where, where between those two polarities does your interest and vision of America lie. Yeah, I think America is a wonderful country and it's absolutely horrendous in lots of respect. And I think I can probably sustain those two thoughts at the same time. I think in fictional terms, it is a broader canvas than Britain. There's no getting away from that. And that's true of films and it's true of TV as well. So it is this beautifully broad canvas. And I think American fiction, I could have picked any number of novels from the American canon. I love American fiction. You know, to some extent, if you leave aside... Um, which you have to do, at least in, in literary terms in, in this country, the sort of Native Americans, First Nation people. It is a very new country. It's a country that's very European and it, it had this freshness to it. They were pushing west and discovering things. You know, If you think America was still effectively fighting wars in its interior at the beginning of the 20th century, it's a very young country. And that's why it's constantly sort of wrestling with its national identity in fiction, even hard-boiled fiction, westerns, even in genre fiction, it, it tends to tackle the idea of what it means to be American. I think it's a very complicated country and therefore it produces 
moments of greatness and moments of, of, of scale. It's sort of size and scale I kind of admire about American fiction. Um, I'm going to get you a, a, a sort of maybe top five exotic novels and try and foist them yeah. on you and see if you'll if you'll take that journey with me. But I might start with Wild Women, which is the anthology that I edited, which is women's accounts, first-hand accounts of, of adventures across the world, which maybe you'll enjoy. But I wonder if there's um, anything, you know, I've just identified that because I love books that are you know, that take me far away. But if there's anything that you still feel, I really wish I'd read that or I must read that or I, you know, or or do you see the future of your reading along with your writing because obviously you're going to carry on writing these books. Do you see it as as just, are these the titles you're going to keep rereading till death do you part? Uh, I will reread them till I die, absolutely. But I I, I do, I will open, you know, I think in any, like I said, I probably read, if I read... I have a bath book, a bed book, a train book, a non-fiction book. Well, do you read them all at the same time? Yeah, all at the same time. <sighs> uh, and therefore, there's always scope for other stuff. So, you know, I, I've I read poetry more than I've ever done a couple of years ago because I used to write a lot about poetry and, and study poetry, but never really read it for pleasure. And it's a very different way of reading. You know, when you read an Emily, an Emily Dickinson poem, it can be, you know, 12 lines long. And you have to, it take, might take half an hour to read. Whereas my reading speed is normally a detective novel, which I'm bashing through in a day and a half. And so that complete difference in approach to reading is why reading is just so ultimately amazing. Why my great dream in life is to be retired. <laughs> I just think being retired and being able to read all the time would just be absolutely magnificent. Because ultimately, there is no end. There's no end point. There's no center. Because you can you move off into your exotic fiction. I can go off to poetry. There's... You know, there's plays. I like reading plays probably rather than seeing them. That annoys people as well. Yes, no, I can see why your colleague, Asma Mir, might express some frustration with you occasionally. Yeah, I'm a frustrating type of person. But there's no end. There's no end and there's no middle. Um, but it's reassuring at the same time. So I don't know if I've, I've slightly contradicted myself. There's something there that's just so utterly central to my life that I... I, I and it's helped me out. And it's, it's, it's practical as well as frippery at the same time I, I don't know there's, there's, there's definitely something I'm reaching for somehow that would be the perfect end point if it wasn't for the fact that I'm desperate to know what the perfect bath book is PG Woodhouse I think is a very very good uh, bath book what um, makes a good bath book I think you've got to be able to read it in 20 minute chunks I think you've got it's got to be quite mass markety because it will get wet and steamy you can see if you were going to go into my room with all my books in you'll just see some bulging spines and they're the bath books. They're the bath books I've read more than once. In the, it, it, more than once. So check out The Bulging Spines. And I think it, it can't be too complicated. It can't require you to think too much. You've got to be hot and flustered and just soothed by something straightforward. And I would say a, a PG... Uh, look out for the, the, the spines of my PG Woodhouse books. I feel a new anthology coming on, Stig Abel's Bath books. In the bath with me! No, In the bath with Stig, that's a title. It's a title not many people would buy, I think. I don't know, I'd pick up a copy, definitely. Uh, an absolute delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your books to live by. It's been so interesting. Oh, I've enjoyed so it so much, Marilyn. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the Times Radio app.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.